Take your Bibles with me, if you would, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We will, Lord willing, conclude our study in 1 Peter this morning and get through all of chapter 5. And in light of recent sermons through whole chapters of Genesis with 30 plus verses, hopefully uh, there will be less to say about these 14 verses than 37 or 40 or 50 verses. But we will look at 1 Peter 5 in its entirety this morning. Follow along, I'm going to read 1 Peter 5, and these words that we will hear this morning have the weight of God's words to us this morning. They are, in fact, God's words to us. 1 Peter 5, beginning at verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together before we look at God's word this morning. Father, these are your words that you have given to us. They are instructive to us. They are encouraging for us. So Holy Spirit, would you come and use your word in our heart and in our life to build us up to be more godly people, to to be a more devoted church to following your commands and your precepts. Would you help us grow in our love for you and gratitude for you? And would you help us to grow in our longing for the day when your glory will be revealed? We pray this in your name. Amen. Have you ever skipped to the end of something? Whether it's a book that you get impatient reading, and growing up that was my M.O., I don't remember much about Ivanhoe, but I remember the end of Ivanhoe. Have you ever skipped to the end of a sporting event that you don't want to watch the whole way through? And you just want to find out how the game ends. So you go straight to the last two minutes of the fourth quarter or the ninth inning of the ball game. 
or maybe a series finale that you can't wait to see who made the cut or who got sent home. And rather than watching all of the the drama, just watch the last five minutes and find out who got cut. Well, we're going to do something similar to that this morning as we look at our text. Before we consider verses 1 through 11, I want us to look at the end of Paul's letter, verses 12 through 14. There's, there's going to be several things that we will see in verses 12 through 14 that will show up as we examine verses 1 through 11. Oftentimes, passages of Scripture like verses 12 through 14 get glossed over. Because it's just the end. He's just telling the church how much he loves them and, and dropping names and saying goodbye for now and amen. But there is profitability in verses 12 through 14 because verses 12 through 14 are God's words too. So consider with me verses 12 through 14. We read, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. And there, there's much that we know of Silvanus. Silvanus is mentioned here primarily as the, as the courier of this letter. That he is, he is the man who would have taken this letter and physically given it to one or more of these churches and dropped it off and given it to them. He could also have been the one who helped Peter write this letter. That that Peter, as someone who had been through persecution, maybe his hands did not function the best with writing. And so Silvanus may have been the penman for this. Peter's words through the pen of Silvanus. Silvanus has an interesting background in the New Testament. He is more than likely the same man who accompanied Paul on his travels in Asia Minor in Greece. He is listed as the co-author of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians along with Paul and Timothy. He appears to be the same guy we would know as Silas from the book of Acts. So, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, this man is a trusted leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He is a faithful brother as Peter considers him. Peter has a long history with Silvanus. More than likely, Peter's audience would have known of Silvanus, but they wouldn't have known much about him as a person. And so Peter here at the end of his letter introduces Silvanus to let them know, hey, this is the guy who's going to be bringing you the letter, and he is a faithful brother. He's not going to tamper with or rewrite or edit what has been said. He is a faithful brother. We find out next, though, towards the end of verse 12, why Peter wrote this letter. He says that he has written to them briefly. Maybe not as briefly as 3 John, but he has written to them briefly. And why has he written to them? He has written to them briefly, exhorting and testifying, instructing and encouraging through firsthand witness That this, the contents of what he has written in this letter, this is the true grace of God. So imagine as as you receive this letter from Peter, and it is opened and it is read. And all of the false teaching and all of the different worldviews coming around. and, And as you read through this letter, you would be tempted to think to yourself, as he's writing to exiles, what if it's not true? What if a fact checker comes along and, and 
points out things of this letter. And, and it's actually a distortion rather than a genuine piece of scripture, a piece of truth from God. And so Peter here in his conclusion, I've written to you exhorting and testifying that what I have written to you, that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. What is holding you right now? What is sustaining you right now? The the grit and determination that you need to stand in the face of persecution is what I have written to you about. Is what I have exhorted you to and testified about. This is the true grace of God in which you stand. The church is reminded, even as Peter concludes this letter, that they are to stand in this true grace. This is not a call to to sit on your laurels in this grace. This is not a call to to lay back and just wait, to let go and to let God. But this is a call to stand. Verse 13 begins, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. Some people come to verse 13 and and they hypothesize that maybe this is Peter's wife or this is some specific person that the church would have known who was a female figure. But as we look through the New Testament, oftentimes feminine pronouns are used to reference the church in general. And so what we have here is, is this church that Peter is at. She who is in Babylon, and Babylon being a symbolic figure for the seat of ungodliness, the seat of those who are against God, they send greeting to you. And what's interesting to note about verse 13 is is this church who more likely than not is in Rome. Peter would have written these words, we believe, from Rome. So this is a reference to the church in Rome. They They not only greet these churches that Peter is writing to, but they are elect together with these churches. These are encouraging words that Peter is leaving these churches with. You're not alone in this struggle. You have brothers around the world who send greeting to you. And if they're greeting you like the apostles would greet these churches, there's going to be prayer right up against that. That they are not only going to be greeting you, but they are... That means they're praying for you because they know of you. And so does Mark, my son. Peter's mention of Mark at the end of this letter. This is a reference to John Mark. You may remember John Mark as the one who left Paul on his first missionary journey. He departed and left. And here Peter does not refer to him as Paul does the last time that we see him in Acts. As as someone that he does not want to use for ministry. But he references him as Mark, my son. Mark, as, as best as we know, is not a biological son of Peter, but this is more of a reference to the fact that Peter has been Mark's mentor and he has been an example to Mark. Mark, as we know, wrote that second gospel and Peter would have been a huge help to Mark as he penned his gospel. But then we come to verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. This is a a show of affection. Culturally appropriate to those times. We We could live that out now. Greet one another with an eager handshake. There are different ways that different families... 
show affection in greeting. And, and Paul or Peter here is encouraging this church to show that familial affection to one another. And then he concludes, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Everyone that Peter is writing to shares the same status that Peter himself shares. He is in Christ Jesus. They all are in Christ Jesus. He concludes with a peace wish for the churches. Recall Paul's words in Romans 5, that because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Maybe not peace in this current life, in the life that that his audience, that Peter's audience is getting ready to experience in persecution, but peace for eternity with God. There's, There's no longer a conflict taking place between the audiences of these churches and God, there is peace, and so he wishes for peace to all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, as we turn our attention now to verses 1 through 11, and we consider verses 1 through 11, we are going to see three exhortations, and each one of these exhortations comes with a promise of future glory or reward. The main idea of of verses 1 through 11, as we look at these verses this morning, is Living in light of future glory leads to a humble dependence on God in this immediate life. Living in light of future glory leads to a humble dependence on God in this immediate life. We see the first of these three exhortations in verses 1 through 4. We see the exhortation to shepherd. The exhortation to shepherd in verses 1 through 4. Peter writes, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that that will be revealed. And then verses 2, 3, and 4 contain exhortations directed at the elders or the leaders of these churches. Why does he start with the elders? And why at this point in the letter does he address the elders? Well, he's just talked in chapter 4 about how persecution and judgment will begin at the house of God. There are many who see a reference to Ezekiel 9 here, where, where there is judgment prophesied against the people of Israel, and it's going to begin at the temple, and it's going to begin with the elders of the temple, the leaders. So here Peter identifies the elders here as those, if, the, if judgment is going to begin at the house of God, who are the most visible people of the house of God who would be in the crosshairs of persecution? And it would be the elders. So the elders who are among you, I exhort. The structure of verses 1 through 4 is is pretty simple. Peter gives us his position of exhortation. What qualifies him to exhort the elders? We see that he exhorts them as a fellow elder. And what's interesting about this is he does not invoke his apostleship in his exhortation. At the beginning of the letter, he writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here, he does not appeal to that. He says, I who am a fellow elder... He exhorts as a peer rather than an apostle. He is one of them and he is, he is exhorting them to follow an example. He exhorts as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now that creates 
a, a bit of a controversy because Peter was not present for Christ's death, if you recall. He, he ran off after he had denied Christ three times, and there's no record of him being there. So in what sense could we say that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ? He saw how Christ was treated all throughout his life from the time he was his disciple. He saw the crowd applaud Jesus as he came into Jerusalem and then call for his crucifixion. He was present in Gethsemane when Jesus was betrayed. He was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And he exhorts, thirdly, as a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. We saw a reference similar to this in chapter 4, verse 13. When we read that we were to not be surprised when trials come, but we were to rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Peter here is a partaker of that glory that will be revealed. He is, he is one of those who is eagerly waiting for Christ's return. So, from his position of exhortation, we see the command, this exhortation to shepherd, which is, shepherd God's flock that is among you, serving as overseers. Shepherd God's flock that is among you as overseers. That is the command. And then there are three qualifications to that and a promise. The first qualification is not by compulsion, but willingly. The second qualification, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. The third qualification, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And then the promise in verse 4. If an elder heeds Peter's exhortation regarding how they ought to lead. And that's, that's the emphasis in 1 through 4. The emphasis is not on what elders to, are to do so much as it is how the elders are to do what they do. If they heed his exhortation, they are promised a crown of glory that does not fade away when the chief shepherd appears. And this is a reference to Christ's return. As we read this morning, Christ is not only the chief shepherd, he is the good shepherd. So what is Peter getting at in these four verses? What is his point that he is trying to get across to us? Elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among them, and they are not to be like bad shepherds. That may be kind of self-evident, but... If we read through Scripture, there, are a, there is a long list of people who did not shepherd well. Listen to Ezekiel 34 as God indicts bad shepherds. The words of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Those are... 
Those are not the kind of shepherds that Peter is encouraging the elders in these churches to be. Instead, he is encouraging them to be like how God is a shepherd. We read in Ezekiel 34, 11, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Peter here is encouraging the elders to not be like bad shepherds, but to rather imitate the good shepherd. What did we hear in John 10 this morning? That Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for the sheep, who loves the sheep, who ultimately lays down his life for the sheep. Elders are reminded that those they are to shepherd are not theirs. Look in verse 2. We are to, elders are called to shepherd God's flock. They are to shepherd God's flock. They do not belong to them. They belong to God. Hebrews 13, 17 gives exhortation to this. That that we are to watch over them for who we will give an account for. But they are not ours. They are God's. We are called to shepherd them. Peter would have remembered the words that were told him by Jesus in John 21. When Jesus asks Peter if, do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, yes, you know I do, Lord. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Implied in this command is that an elder must lead humbly under the direction of the chief shepherd. In light of the fact that the flock he has is not his... And in light of the fact that there is a chief shepherd, he's not the boss. So how he leads, how he shepherds, is to be done humbly in submission to how God wants him to shepherd. In that first qualification, elders must serve the church because they want to, not because they have to or are forced to. That's what Peter means when he says, not by compulsion, but willingly. With that second qualification, elders must serve the church free of greed. This is something that Paul impugns the false teachers for throughout his writing. In Titus 1.7, he talks about how the false teachers were greedy. They had dishonest gain. Even in Peter's second epistle, he will write of false teachers who are seeking dishonest gain. Not these elders. They are to be true elders. And true elders don't serve because it's just a job or a way to skim money off for themselves, to enrich themselves or make themselves great. Rather, it is a way for them to faithfully serve and shepherd God's flock. They are to do so eagerly. We could say joyfully. The third qualification means that elders must serve the church by example. Being examples to the flock. 
This means they cannot serve the church or serve the church through manipulation or dictatorship. This is not an ivory tower where where a pastor sits excluded from his people and shouts down commands and exhortations and you must do's. The promise in verse 4 assumes humble submission to the plans and mission of Jesus Christ. And here, Peter encourages the elders to follow Christ's example and endure suffering in the present so that they they will receive the reward at the end for their faithful service to Christ. So brothers and sisters, what does this mean for us? Because most of us are not elders. There are Six of us who are pastors and elders. Pastor Harris, myself, John Caparilla, Randy Egoff, David LeBlanc, Mike Koontz. Well, if, you're, if that's not your name, you can be tempted to look at 1 Peter 5 and say, doesn't really matter to me. I mean, that's for them. They need to follow this. How does, how do these, how does this exhortation for elders to shepherd apply to all of us? Well, a word to the, my fellow elders. Brother elders of the church, we must be careful to heed Peter's exhortations. As you shepherd and lead the church, do you do so willingly? Do you do so eagerly? Do you shepherd the flock by being an example to the flock? Those of you who aspire to be elders, this is a blueprint for how you are to do what you are to do. This is something that we as a church ought to look for in the future for faithful elders. As God calls men and as, he, uh, as, as we try to have more elders, this is what we ought to be looking for. Men who will shepherd the flock of God willingly, eagerly, and by being examples to the flock. So brothers and sisters in Christ, use these verses as a way to pray for your elders. Pray that they would shepherd well. Pray that they would lead by example. Pray that they would serve eagerly out of joyful willingness to serve God. Pray that they would be what Peter exhorts them to be in this passage. But one other thing that is crucial in our text is the among you and entrusted to you language that we see here. How can elders shepherd those they aren't around? How can elders shepherd those who aren't among you? So there's a two-way street here because on the one hand, elders have to be examples. They have to be available to the flock. But on the other hand, the flock has to be available. There has to be a willingness of the church to gather and to be around the shepherds. And there has to be an availability of the shepherd to be an example and to be among the flock. This is why our gatherings on Sundays and and anytime the church as a whole gathers are so important. Because they are opportunities, yes, for us to encourage and edify one another. But it's also an opportunity for you to allow the elders to, to elder you and for you to hold accountable the elders who are shepherding you. So we see the exhortation 
to shepherd. Secondly, we see the exhortation to humility. The exhortation to humility. And we see this in verses 5 through 7 when Peter writes, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. The beginning of verse 5, we see this word likewise. And we may be wondering what is the relationship between the command to shepherd and this command to the young people? How are they analogous? Well, like we have seen in chapter 3, Peter uses this word likewise to signal a a complementary subject to what was previously discussed. This this command is going to complement the exhortation to shepherd. So Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd, and then he turns and exhorts the young people. And how does he exhort the young people? Well, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. What does Peter mean by commanding the younger people to submit to the elders? Is is he changing the way that he's using elder here from verses 1 through 4 where it's referring to church leader, and now it's it's an age-based dynamic. So young people... Elderly people, there's, a, there's the age dynamic, or is he referencing still in verse 5 church leaders by his use of elders? Is this purely an age-based command, or is he, in, is he viewing the elders like he just did in the previous verses? Well, I believe that Peter is addressing younger people. That the younger people are not younger in the faith. They are like... Teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And he's exhorting them because more than likely, and you can speak to this, parents, they would be the most likely to rebel against leadership. Young people are the rebels. Young people are the ones who say, yeah, but we could do this differently. Yeah, that's how it's always been, but we can make it totally new. It doesn't have to be this way. We can, we can try some new thing. And Peter speaks specifically to the younger people in age. Especially in the context of persecution. Why do we have to pay attention to you? Why can't we just do our own thing? We can make our lives easier. Why don't you just let us do our own thing? You let us be who we're going to be. You do what you need to be, obviously, because you're an elder of the church. And we can... And Peter here specifically addresses the younger people to submit themselves to their elders. But then he expands the command. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. So, young people, elders, men and women, anybody who is in the church now is given a command. And what is the command that they are given? To be submissive to one another and clothed with humility. We ought to understand this command in light of Paul's instructions to the Philippians, where he tells them not to look on their own things, but to look out for the needs of others. To not be caught up in in selfishness and considering yourself, but to in love consider the needs of others. 
to submit to one another. Well, the only way that we can obey this command to be submissive to one another is if we heed the second command, to be clothed with humility. Mutual humility should be a dominant feature of the church. It's something that the church should be known for, Peter is encouraging us here. To be clothed with humility echoes back to when Jesus put on the apron and washed his disciples' feet and humbled himself. That we are to be clothed with humility. Why? Why does a Christian have to submit to one another? Why do we have to be clothed with humility? Peter, why are you putting all of this this heavy-handed stuff down on us that we have to do? Why? Because for God resists the proud. He is actively against the proud. He works to hinder the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a reference to Proverbs 3.34. And he, he references Proverbs 3 because in the midst of persecution, the church who has just been commanded to entrust their soul to God must also be humble or else they will be at odds with God. If they are proud and if they are puffed up, if the elders are looking out for their own gain, if they're eldering because, well, I have to do this, if they're, if they're domineering and exercising unhealthy and ungodly authority over the church, that will puff them up in pride. If the young people of the church are not submissive and, are not, and do not humble themselves, if, if everyone else does not clothe themselves with humility... God will resist us. But he gives grace to the humble. So in light of the fact of what 1 Peter 4.19 says, that we are to entrust ourselves to, a cre- to our faithful creator, there is humility that must be a dominant feature in our daily lives. So, verse 6, therefore, in light of what has just been said, in light of the command to be clothed with humility and that God resists the proud, it is crucial that believers humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. That's where he goes next. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God is a phrase that harkens back to the Old Testament. It is used numerous times throughout the Old Testament, and it is used in reference to God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. That when he delivered them, he brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So what is... Peter getting at here? What does he mean to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? In one sense, Christians are going to be humbled just by the fact that they're Christians. As as exiles and pilgrims in this world, they will not be welcomed. They will not be promoted. They will not be exalted by the rulers and powers of this world. They will be rejected. They will be humiliated. One commentator writes, the command to be humbled under God's mighty hand is a command to accept, though not to seek, difficult circumstances as a part of God's deliverance. 
It is a command to accept difficult circumstances as a part of God's deliverance. Consider back to that analogy of how the mighty hand of God was used in the Old Testament with deliverance from Exodus. The people of Israel, before they were delivered out of Egypt, did they suffer? Yeah, they were enslaved. They, they went through some of the plagues that God sent on the people of Egypt. It got worse before it got better for them. And it is as if Peter here envisions in his mind what is taking place with the church as a second exodus. That they are in this world as exiles, like the children of Israel were exiles in Egypt. And just as the children of Israel were waiting for God to deliver them, and they were humbled under his mighty hand until they were delivered, so Peter sees that taking place for the churches here, for you and I. So we accept difficult circumstances as part of God's deliverance, neither railing against God, why did this happen to me, or what did I do to deserve this, nor raging against those causing difficulty. Because what are we commanded to do? Peter has commanded us, rather than to speak against those people, we are to bless those people. Well, this whole thing seems like a lot more than what we bargained for as Christians. Why should we accept God's will for us and humble ourselves under God's hand of deliverance if it includes trials? I thought getting saved made my life easier. I thought getting saved was supposed to help me get rid of all of this pain and suffering. So why should we accept it? Why should we heed Paul's exhortation to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Well, the end of verse 6 shows us that he may exalt you in due time. Again, the temporalness of what's taking place in this world is a, is a shadow of eternity to come. The this, this second part of verse 6 gives us the purpose. So that God may exalt us in due time. And this points back to 4 verse 13, when, when his glory is revealed. We may be marginalized, we may be outcast, we may be canceled in this life. But it is worth it in this life to be exalted by God in the next. So then how does verse 7 function? Verse 7 serves as comfort against what we just read in verses 5 and 6. There's, there's some toughness with verses 5 and 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he's going to exalt you down the road in due time. Well, what about right now when I'm, when I'm wound up with things taking place in this life, and my life is falling apart, and things are just spinning out of control in this world? In life, we face unpredictable and unjust persecution and marginalization. We face the fear of the unknown. We face the anxiety of living for Christ in a hostile land as aliens. And that can overwhelm us. So what are we to do? Verse 7 reminds us that we have an outlet for all those cares and anxieties that we face. Brother and sister in Christ, verse 7 is one of the most warm verses in all of Scripture. Be humbled and cast upon him all your anxieties and worries. Why? 
Because he cares for you. He cares for you. As the chief shepherd of the sheep, who knows his sheep by name, and he calls them and they hear his voice and they follow him and he gives to them eternal life, he cares for them. Consider how this encouragement speaks back to the fact of Christ being our chief shepherd, our good shepherd. Even David's words in Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And all of the promises that he gives in Psalm 23. Believers consider that God is neither unaware nor unconcerned about what his people are going through. He is neither unaware nor unconcerned. No, he is, he is very concerned. He is very aware of what you and I are going through in order to remain faithful to him. And what does he encourage us to do with all of those weights and all of those things that weigh us down? Cast them on him. Prayer. Prayer is a sign of humility. Prayer is acknowledging that I can't do anything about this, but that God can do something about this. So brother and sister in Christ, be encouraged to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. To endure persecution now, knowing that the trials and the difficulties and the tough times that you will go through, the anxieties and emotions and feelings that you have, you can cast on God because He cares for you. He's not out of the office. He's not missing in action. He's not going to come up empty when you need Him most. He is very aware and concerned with what you're going through. And He wants you to cast those cares, those worries, those anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You. So, how essential is humility to your morning routine of getting ready for the day? He does say to be clothed with humility. And each of us go through that morning routine of getting ready and getting dressed for the day. How essential is humility to your morning routine? How critical is it that you not forget? to be clothed in humility before you walk out the door? How ought the fact that God cares for us, how ought it to motivate us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? It should. The fact that God cares for us should motivate us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And like we saw in verses 1 through 4, again, we see that Peter's grasp of of future glory compels him to encourage people to endure persecution, to endure hardship for the sake of Christ. He did that. His understanding of what of what is to come in the glory that is to be revealed at Christ's return, it compelled him to endure persecution. Could the same be said of you and I? That we have such a grasp of what is to take place when Christ returns 
And we are so eagerly anticipating that time that we are willing to humble ourselves under whatever God's will for us is on this earth in persecution and suffering so that we will be prepared for that future glory. So we've seen the exhortation to shepherd, the exhortation to humility. Finally, we see the exhortation to persevere. The exhortation to persevere. This is in, found in verses 8 through 11. Where Peter turns from exhorting leaders and others in the church about humility back to the reality of spiritual warfare and suffering in this present life. There are four significant commands that show up in this passage in verses 8 through 11. In verse 8, we see two of them be sober, be vigilant. In verse 9, we see, the, we see the third one, resist him. And then how we are to resist him. We are to resist him steadfast in the faith. Well, that middle part is significant though. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter's commands to be sober and to be vigilant are the opposite of someone who is drunk and inebriated and has no idea what's taking place. And those are images that he's brought up recently in chapter 4. He's called Christians to be sober-minded. And if we are to be vigilant, we must be sober-minded. How vigilant is someone who has no clue what's going on around them and is inebriated? So we are to be sober, we are to be vigilant. Why? Because the devil stalks believers like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, how are we to understand this? I mean, are we in danger of walking out the door today and being picked off by some random lion terrorizing the streets of Limerick and Royersford? Peter here is using a metaphor. And his metaphor of the devil as a lion corresponds to the shepherd flock metaphor that he just used in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Elders are shepherds. They are to shepherd the flock. Who are the flock? We are the flock. The church is the flock of God. We are God's sheep. To say that a lion would unsettle the shepherd and a flock of sheep is an understatement. If there's a lion present, and there's a shepherd, and there's sheep, they are going to be agitated and on edge. A lion strikes fear in the heart of shepherds and sheep. Consider David's account when he's talking to Saul prior to fighting Goliath. He references the fact that he has slain lions and bears because he's protecting and watching out for the sheep. So to follow Peter's point, the lion or the devil, he roars. And in this metaphor, the the roaring of the lion is referencing this persecution, this intimidation, this, do you really want to follow God if it's going to cost you? And why is he doing that? He's trying to inflict fear on the people of God. And so, brothers and sisters, it is important that we be sober and we be vigilant. It's necessitated by the severity of the opponent that we face. He is not a cute, tame kitten. He's a roaring lion. 
Indeed, the struggle that believers face is what Paul articulated to the Ephesian believers. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against rulers of darkness, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. So verse 9, Peter tells us to resist the devil. The same resisting that God does of the person who is proud is how those who are humbly trusting in God are to resist the devil. Actively resist. We are told to resist the devil steadfast in the faith. Again, this is very similar language to what we would read in Ephesians 10, where Paul, or Ephesians 6, where Paul says, Having done all to stand, stand. Notice the connection, though, between the command to be humble and the command to be sober and to be vigilant and to resist. Humility does not mean that we are to be weak Christians, that we are to be backboneless Christians. No, just the opposite. We are to be sober and to be vigilant. We are to resist. There is... There is a grit and determination that is needed by those who are going to follow Christ in the midst of persecution. We're not commanded to perform Herculean efforts for God, but merely to do what Peter commands, exhorts us to, to persevere, to stand fast, to resist. Why? Because there's something that's helpful to know, and that is knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. This is, this is extremely helpful, and we saw that referenced in verses 12 through 14, that she who is elect in Babylon greets you. Well, she who is, she who is in Babylon is also going through suffering. And all the other churches that, that these brothers and sisters might feel like they are distanced from, Peter says, no, be encouraged that you guys are not the only churches facing persecution. This type of suffering, facing the adversary, the devil as a roaring lion, that type of suffering is faced, that they experience that by your brotherhood all around the world. So what does he say? What are his encouragements to the people in light of that? Does he say, hang in there. You can do it. I'll be praying for you. No, he encourages the believers to look to the future. Look at verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Well, when's that going to happen? In the future when Christ returns. To him, Jesus Christ, be the glory and the dominion, the rule forever and ever. Amen. So Peter here gives us this this well-wish, this doxology for these beleaguered Christians to be encouraged to persevere to the end. 
Why? Because they know that God will restore them and bring them to wholeness at the return of Christ. Those four verbs, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle, are a crescendo of words that point to the extent to which Jesus will restore what is wrong and what is broken. He promised that back in 1 Peter 1 when he said that we are being kept by the power of God until the day of salvation. And if we are being kept by God now, we will be kept and restored and strengthened and perfected. We will be restored. As we consider this exhortation to persevere, consider for a moment the differences between the devil and God in this passage. The devil destroys, the devil harasses, the devil despises. If you follow him, you go to destruction. Consider God. He restores rather than destroys. He protects rather than harasses. He cares deeply for rather than despises. And if you follow him, there is life. How often do we attribute the attributes of the devil to God? How often do we think to ourselves that God is harassing us or that maybe for a moment we believe God is despising us or that he doesn't care for us? Brother and sister, that is not the portrait that Peter paints here. He paints a picture of a God who restores, who protects, who cares, who gives life. What a good shepherd God is to us, brothers and sisters. Friend, if you have never trusted in Christ for salvation, consider what we have seen this morning. And consider the words of John that were read for us this morning. Jesus Christ is not only the chief shepherd, he is the good shepherd. John 10.15 tells us that Jesus is a better shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. Those who are his sheep receive eternal life and they never perish. And those are the promises that Peter is, is appealing to here. So you may ask, how can I become one of God's sheep? How can you become one that God cares for? Friend, it is not by doing good works or trying your hardest to overcome your past sins or shortcomings. Becoming one of Jesus' sheep happens when you believe in Jesus and trust in him for eternal life. If you have never done that, I invite you to talk to me, to myself, or Pastor Harris after the service about how you can have a relationship with God, you can have your sins forgiven, you can become one of God's sheep. Well, now we come to verses 12 through 14, and as we've already seen, Silvanus is this faithful brother who who serves as an in-person example for what Peter has just commanded elders to be. He is a faithful brother. Elders, we are called to be faithful. Specifically in this last chapter, Peter has done a lot of exhorting and testifying to the sufferings of Christ. And here he references that's why he has written this letter. 
The true grace of God in which we stand reinforces that we are to be steadfast in the faith. If what Peter has written is true, then the contents of it are worth standing for and resisting demonic harassment. Just as believers in the world experience the same sufferings that Peter's audience is going through, they also share the same election and calling. And we see that in verses 12 through 14. That we have been called by Christ Jesus to be his children. And part of that is that we all share in these sufferings. And then he ends with peace for all who are in Christ Jesus. These final words of exhortation are encouragement for the embattled exiles Peter is writing to. And they're not only encouraging for those embattled exiles, they are encouraging exhortations for us as embattled exiles. As we await the day when Christ will return and call us home to be with him, these words are encouraging for us. So may God give us grace to live with humility in this life as we anticipate the return of our conquering king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you for what you share with us about you in your word. You have not called us to do anything that you yourself did not, did not do, Jesus. You humbled yourself and became obedient to your father. You suffered unjustly. You have been faithful. Father, I pray for the elders of this church that you would help us to be good examples of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would help us to follow your example of humility. That we would be clothed by humility. Help us to follow your example, Jesus, of being steadfast in this world, of resisting the devil. May we long for and eagerly await the, the time when you will return and then we will get to follow in your example of being glorified, of being exalted. And Father, we pray that you would hasten that day. Help us to be sober and to be vigilant as we await that day. In your name I pray, amen.